Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. Over the past few years, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion has sponsored a series of diversity dialogue interviews with individuals of different backgrounds who work in various capacities in the court system. We've learned about different cultures, different viewpoints, and different perspectives. We've seen that those differences don't balkanize us or separate us. Rather, they bring us together in a beautiful mosaic or tapestry that, together, is a unified court system. It should come as no surprise that the name of a newsletter from the court system's Office of Diversity and Inclusion is Mosaic. Today's program is a special edition, and we are deeply honored and pleased to have as our guest the Honorable Edwina G. Mendelson, Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for Justice Initiatives. Judge Mendelson's job, in a nutshell, is to ensure meaningful access to justice for all New Yorkers. She also oversees the Division of Policy and Planning, and in that capacity is in charge of approximately 300 problem-solving courts. And if she didn't already have a full plate, Judge Mendelson has been tasked with implementing the recommendations of the Special Advisor on Equal Justice, Jay Johnson, in his October 2020 report examining racial bias in the court system. As we mark the one-year anniversary of that groundbreaking report, we thought this would be a good time to check in with Judge Mendelson for both a retroactive and a prospective look at where we were, where we are, and where we are going. Judge Mendelson, thank you so much for coming on, on the program. Before we dive in, I'd like to ask you something I've been meaning to ask you for a while, actually. Uh, you are a graduate of CUNY Law School, uh, one of the many places you have a degree from. And it seems to me that every time you mention CUNY Law School, I hear the CUNY Law School model, which is law in the service of human needs. Law in the service of human needs. Why does that resonate so strongly with you? Well, I will tell you, thank you, John. I love that question. <laughs> it gives me the opportunity to tell you that I was fortunate, so fortunate to, to attend the CUNY School of Law uh, soon after it launched, soon after it was created as the nation's premier public interest law school. So 36 years ago, 1985, I entered as a proud member of the school's third class. Um, and its motto from the inception was law in the service of human needs. It was expressed to us often. It was in, in, ingrained in all of our studies. And while I was at that special school, and it's guided me in all my years in the law, as you can see, um, just the calling of law as uh, being of service to others just seems fitting. But, but, but guess what? I have adopted a brand new motto just this week to serve as a complement to that one, a supplement, perhaps. Does CUNY, ha <laughs> does CUNY happen to know that you modified their motto? <laughs> uh, we won't tell them. Uh, they get to keep their motto, and I get to use it and then add another sentence to that it. That sounds fair. I heard it on a podcast this week, and all it says, and I think it does uh, fit nicely with law and the service of human needs, is we should give more to this world than we take. Doesn't that fit? It absolutely does. It absolutely doesn't. It fits with you. Let's, let's back up a little. Uh, tell me about your background. I, I, don't, I don't know much about that. Uh, where where you grew up, how you grew up, what inspired your interest in public service law? What's the story? 
So here's the story. I am a proud daughter of the Bronx. I grew up in Edenwald Houses, which is located in what is now called the Wakefield section of the Bronx. My mom still lives, my 90-year-old mom still lives in that neighborhood, the neighborhood of my childhood. My daughters live nearby, and I am a proud public school education, uh, educated person from elementary school all the way through my undergraduate and other degrees that you've mentioned. Um, and uh, if you really want to make my day during this interview, don't call me judge anymore. Call me doctor, because nobody does that. I don't get that honorific <laughs> mentioned to me. Um, and I uh, attained that degree from a public institution, the wonderful City University of New York. So, uh, Dr. Mendelson, are there uh, things you experienced or saw that fostered what I think anyone who knows you would say would see as a genuine passion for equal justice? And this is not a job for you, and that's obvious. What's, what's, uh, where does that come from? So I'm unapologetic uh, about my feelings that my most recent assignment from Chief Judge Janet DeFiori to lead our court system's Equal Justice and in Courts Initiative is what I consider to be the assignment of a lifetime. And I don't hide my passion for equal justice. In terms of life experiences, I have been black and female my entire life. So you and I don't have time sufficient to fully discuss the very many things that I've witnessed and experienced that contribute to my care for this work. But in thinking about this question, it causes me to reflect on my educational path. And I can just give you one example that I think will be helpful in answering this question. I, I'm taking you back to high school. I was a senior at, in music and art high school, uh, also known as the Fame School, where I played cello. And I was given the opportunity, along with my classmates, to take two courses at a college uh, while completing my high school senior year. And I really don't recall how I was provided with this opportunity, but I remember the registration process clearly. And I, what stands out for me and what I can remember as if it were yesterday was that when the group of us went to sign up for our classes, the professor who was in charge of the program looked at me and suggested to me in front of everyone else that I not take the two classes per semester that was being offered he indicated that my chances at actually passing the college level course would be increased if I only took one class and so I wouldn't be taking on too much. Pause. So this person didn't know me. He didn't know what I was capable of. He saw me, he thought he saw me, and he made assumptions about my abilities and made the mistake of underestimating my uh, abilities. So he did not make that suggestion to my classmates who were white and they were present. So what he was communicating to us all about my worth uh, was powerful and impactful. And I'll tell you over the years, helpful. Um, so of course I did well in the two courses I took each semester. Note, two courses each semester. I did not take his kindly advice. And I've been doing pretty well since. But I use that as an example of the context for my passion for equal justice. And I have spent many years exceeding people's 
narrow expectations of me. And that experience with the professor wasn't the first and it won't be the last. And I'll tell you how it applies in real life and in real time. I had the opportunity to go back, of course, and teach at that very same college for 10 years um, uh, while I was getting these degrees that you're aware of um, that I took along the way after uh, receiving my law degree. And I became that professor who took great pride in not underestimating my students based solely upon their appearance or where they came from. And even as a judge, I really try hard to do my best to not make assumptions about people based on identifying features. And that was a lesson uh, for me. But one last thing, and I know uh, um, I'm going on pretty long for that question, but I think this is important. I like to remind people that being a black woman who grew up in this society, that I am not immune from the very same messages that I've been receiving from the womb. Those messages that tell us in our society that certain people are less than just because of who they are, where they've come from, or what they may look like. Um, And so that ties into what we're trying to do with the Equal Justice and Courts Initiative. The implicit bias science tells us that we're susceptible to these quick assumptions and shortcuts that may serve us in many ways, but also lead to disservice. And so, um, you know, and even as a lawyer and a judge, I've had the familiar and disturbing experiences of being mistaken for my family court client. Sometimes I'd say on a good day, I was mistaken for the social worker or the interpreter. Um, And as a judge, as a judge, most recently being told that I don't look like a judge. Recently? Recently. Hmm. So 30 years ago, uh, Ambassador Franklin Williams undertook the first comprehensive look at the court system vis-a-vis racial and ethnic bias and found that the courts were falling quite a bit short of their obligations to ensure equal justice. Last year, Secretary Jay Johnson took another look and found much the same thing. So let's start with the good news. Uh, How is the court system better than it was 30 years ago? So the opening paragraphs of the Equal Justice Report note that many within our court system are working hard to get it right and make it better. And that's a quote from the report. And it begins with what Secretary Johnson, who drafted the report, calls the good news. In my opinion, the very act of commissioning this Equal Justice Report is noteworthy and good news. Chief Judge DeFiori making that swift and impactful decision that her response to this uh, season of racial reckoning in our uh, country, in our world, her decision to engage a former highly respected presidential cabinet member, member Secretary Jay Johnson, to be our special advisor on equal justice, an act she performed on the very day of George Floyd's funeral, an act that was quite different from other uh, chief judges' uh, responses. And everybody's responding and thinking about how to respond. Um, And to have an outsider review our court system's practices and policies as they relate to issues of racial bias and fairness. Well, I'll say what Secretary Johnson has said. I've had the privilege of presenting with him a few times since he issued his report. Secretary Johnson says he would never have invited an outsider to review any agency he he has led. So, you know, there is good news. Today, 
there are more judges of color in the state than we had 30 years ago. And I'm a living example of that as a high ranking statewide um, court leader uh, serving as deputy chief administrative judge for justice initiatives. Um, before me, there were two other black women who held this same post. I also served as administrative judge of the New York City Family Courts, which is another high ranking and, imp and impactful judicial leadership position. And others who have followed me in that role, Judge Jeanette Ruiz, our current administrative judge, a Latina, and uh, Judge Amory Jolly, her deputy administrative judge, um, a black woman, and uh, or African American. Um, and there are many other examples in of diversity increasing in our judicial, our administrative judge ranks, our court management ranks, and our bench. So there is more. Um, but in this, and in discussing equal justice, I want to just put a, a, a pause in uh, here to mention women and the Women in the Courts 2020 survey, uh, also issued more than 30 years after an initial survey uh, uh, created in 1986. The, the Women in the Courts report indicated that we're seeing more women in positions that were in, uh, uh, previously occupied predominantly by men, and especially in administrative judge and appellate court roles. So that's the good news. Where, where are we falling short? What do we, what do we have to do next? Uh, make no mistake, we've got a great, work, a great deal of work to do if we are serious about promoting full and meaningful diversity on the bench in New York State and in all positions of our professional staff and our court managers, despite the progress that I've described. Um, Secretary Johnson, uh, more bad news, talked uh, um, about a problem that the courts can't solve on our own, that our court system presents a dehumanizing experience in overburdened high volume courts that create a demeaning cattle call culture. Again, a quote. He indicated that court users in these courts uh, are frequently, are busy, high volume courts are frequently and disproportionately people of color and those who are experiencing poverty. He used the term second class system of justice for people of color in New York State, very painful to read in 2020 uh, when that report came out in October. Um, he reported that racial intolerance and inherent biases are still very much a real presence within the court system. And um, he described, you know, experiences from many uh, similar to my what I just described about being, uh, you know, not uh, looking like a judge or a lawyer to the public um, and uh, the personal experiences of many of the people who talked to him. Um, even with the increased diversity that I reported on the bench, it is clear there is underrepresentation of judges of color. Um, and that persists. And at the rate, at a rate, if you're just looking at the gap between the non-white population of our state and non-white judges, in 1991, Secretary Johnson indicated that the gap was 20.5 point gap between non-white population and non-white judges. Fast forward to 2020, that gap is 20.9. It's it that hasn't moved. Mm -hmm. So we have more judges of color but the actual, um, it's disproportionate. And it's not like black judges have made great progress, particularly in New York City to be closer to uh, our representation as compared to the public and the public we serve. 
But that's not the same for the Latinx judges and definitely not the same for Asian and Pacific Islander judges. So and outside of New York City, uh, the um, underrepresentation is even more stark. Certainly. I mean, in the uh, third judicial department where I live, that's a 28 county region where there's been a grand total of one judge of color elected to any of those 28 counties ever. There's a grand total of one judge of color, color ever on our appellate division, and she was she was brought up from, I don't know if it was Brooklyn or the Bronx. Never the Bronx. Been, the Bronx. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, so we, we, in, in this area, we have a particularly terrible track record. So, as you noted, and as Secretary Johnson noted, some of this is within our power to change. Some of it is not. So in, your, in the role that you've been given by the chief judge, what can you do? So, you know, I have to say, you know, changing attitudes, eradicating biases, that's not something that we could wave our magic wand. And if I had a magic wand, I'd wave it and handle that. We can't policy away these thorny and difficult and longstanding issues, but it does require, if we want to move the needle and move it in the right direction, it requires a strong commitment and it requires a lasting commitment. This can't be one and done work um, to tackle these thorny issues that face our society and face our courts today. I ha I'm also going to say that race, when we talk about race and racism, you know, I'm thinking back to the college courses where I first learned and was told that race is a social construct that has no biological meaning and it's just not real, right? But we know it has such an outsized impact on real lives despite that. So our goal, our job, our mandate is to eradicate racial intolerance at all levels of the court system. We have an obligation to educate our judges, educate our court personnel to recognize instances of bias, whether it's conscious, explicit, express, or implicit and unconscious. So what's, what is it for us to do? What can we do? First of all, the special advisor, in addition to de detailing their findings, did give us the tool of 13 practical recommendations, not easy, but doable recommendations that are within our power to address. And um, Chief Judge DeFiori and Chief Administrative Judge Marks have fully embraced this report and the recommendations and have committed on behalf of us all to full implementation. And I get to have the job of a lifetime by leading the day-to-day -day implementation um, of this, uh, uh, these recommendations. That, that, that seems key for the message to come from the top. I mean, the, the, the chief judge could have said to Secretary Johnson, thank you for this nice report and what a pretty cover you had and tossed it on a shelf. But she seems to have take, taken the recommendations to heart uh, and she's appointed you to implement them. So it sounds like you have the support from the highest levels of the court system as you go forward. That's very, very true. Um, you mentioned uh, putting the report on the shelf. Uh, the, as I mentioned, the chief judge commissioned that report. She was decisive, and it's definitely a priority for her and her team. And the first recommendation Chief Judge DeFiori has said a number of times is the most important to her, and that is expressing a commitment from the top. And she's holding our executive and judicial leaders uh, responsible for embracing a zero-tolerance policy for racial discrimination and bias in our courts. And, you know, that commitment, promoting diversity and inclusivity in the workforce, mandatory bias training, and other endeavors. I have had, as I mentioned, the privilege of presenting a few times with Secretary Johnson, and I have assured him, not that he needs my reassurance, but I've mentioned that his report 
is not going to be something that's going to be gathering dust on anybody's shelf. His efforts and the efforts of his team in producing that 100-page painful-to-read report, which needs to not just be read once. I've read it a few times and keep seeing new things in it. Um, it's a call to action for us, and we've got a lot of work to do. That's great. Now, we have a number of entities uh, within the courts, and I wonder how they will be involved in this, such as the Office for Diversity and Inclusion, Office of Diversity and Inclusion, the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission, the Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission. Do all of those play a role in, in, in your effort? So I'm glad you mentioned these longstanding and really critically important entities. They were created. They exist to promote justice, equity, and meaningful inclusivity. And they've existed for years before there was a special advisor report on equal justice. So their expertise and their experience will provide invaluable insight to us, and they are guiding our efforts as we move forward. So while I'm leading the day-to-day -day implementation, and I want to mention right now that the project leaders for this within my office are Michelle Smith and Rosemary Martinez and some others. They, Michelle and Rosemary have been working morning, noon, night, and sometimes I'm ashamed through the night on this project. Um, but our job is not to be front and center. Our job is to provide backbone support to the others who are on the front lines doing this work, like those existing uh, institutions you mentioned. And that's the second recommendation in Secretary Johnson's report. He asked us to promote existing institutions, which means giving these institutions a strong platform, giving them resources, and supporting them in their fight, our fight, against racial injustice and other forms of bias. You mentioned the Williams Commission and the Office of uh, Diversity and Inclusion and the Failure Commission, and they've all been working very, very hard uh, independently and together uh, to promote justice in our courts. There are others, the Judicial Committee on Women in the Courts and the Inspector General's Office. I want to mention them because they've been on fire from working to promote a bias-free workplace for our courts. Our Human Resources Division has an action plan. All of the OCA entities, any one of them that you can think of, language access, um, you know, human resources, as I mentioned, our data people, our Division of Technology and Court Research, so many of our court leaders, counsel's office, have been working really, really hard to promote justice with this equal justice in courts endeavor. So this is really a, a unified effort for the, from the entire court system, it sounds like. It is, absolutely. All hands on deck. We've been meeting regularly with the leaders of all of those entities I've mentioned, with our experts uh, from the Perception Institute and other experts we're engaging. Um, it is a, it, it is at a, all hands on deck. It's at the highest level. We have uh, committees established in each of the judicial uh, districts outside of New York City, as well as within New York City. They're equal justice champions and equal justice committees that are doing local equal justice work. Now, I know the court system is making a very concerted effort to reach out to all communities and to encourage people to apply to the court system. And, and we have a, a very, very wide range of titles and opportunities from clerical to IT to law enforcement and everything in between. Is, is that key, bringing people in to, to, change, to, to address that, the perceptual issue that Secretary Johnson notes so strongly? Well, the perception is, is, of course, a reality for people who perceive. Um, 
the concerted effort to reach out to the community, I failed to mention our uh, court officer leadership who have been at the table um, for every meeting and are doing remarkable work, particularly since there was some negative information in this report regarding our law and our court's law enforcement, our court officers. So the, our court officers are rolling out a really comprehensive um, anti-bias training program. Um, they are have created community outreach officers. They are in development with members of uh, the uh, rank and file of our court officer community uh, to do this really important outreach. And together, um, the plan is to reach out to the communities because we can't just, first of all, we can't do this work by ourselves and say, okay, we're the courts, we're gonna fix the courts all by ourselves. We are the courts. We won't succeed if we do it that way. So uh, our engagement with the community stake court stakeholders, like our legal justice partners, as well as the members of the community impacted by and served by the court, critically important. As well as going into, you know, the third JD, I'm giving them a shout out. They've got a really nice program where they're going out into the schools to educate school children about, um, you know, and that's a civics education, important piece of our work as the courts uh, about the opportunities, job opportunities uh, within the courts and other jurisdictions are doing different and similar things. This is really an exciting time, I think, in the courts. You know, there's a path forward. It seems like a great uh, potential for success or at least making it making a, a very uh, significant difference here. Agreed. Judge Mendelson, Dr. Mendelson, thank you for your time and for, for all that you do for the, for the court system and the people of our community. It's been a true pleasure and privilege. Thank you.